Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the IMI Talking Leadership Podcast. I'm thrilled to be joined today by Pauline Marinan Quinn, who's Senior Counsel and former Ombudsman, actually the first Ombudsman for the insurance industry in Ireland, and also inaugural Ombudsman for the Defence Forces Ireland. Pauline recently joined us at our IMI Council meeting and gave our members a fascinating talk about oversight. And when I heard Pauline speak, I just knew I had to get her to feature on the IMI Talking Leadership Podcast. So Pauline, delighted to have you here today. If you'd just like to introduce yourself to our listeners. Um, that's, a, that's an interesting one. To introduce yourself, it reminds me of an article I wrote once in a, a column which I had for the Irish Thatcher when it was reforming. Um, they'd asked me to do a legal column. And of course, I'd been called to the bar at that stage and wasn't allowed to do so because the professional codes of conduct would consider that that you were touting or advertising, so you weren't allowed to do that. I could write a legal column, but under a pseudonym, and the editor wasn't having any of that. So she said, oh, well, I've got it. You will write a column called Pauling's Law, and it can be about legal, but also social affairs and social um, matters, which was really interesting at the beginning of the 80s, because it was when there were so many new changes coming in with regard to um, rights and freedoms, with regard to women's access to employment and related matters. And one of the articles arose out of somebody writing to me to say that she had discovered that when she'd given birth to her son, was nowhere on the um, the birth certificate for the mother's maiden name to be placed. And then all this controversy about um, women keeping their name and not taking their husband's name when they got married or linked up with someone. So the article was called, Who Am I Anyway? <laughs> with question mark. Because yeah, a lot of women had kind of said at the time, you know, this whole thing about who I am um, rose because at different family occasions, whenever all of the people that would be there, nobody would really know whether they belonged to their spouse's family or whether they had an identity of their own. So who am I anyway? Well, I was born in Belfast, um, so uh, at a stone child's dawn. Uh, my father was from the north, my mother from the south, from Dublin. And um, we moved to London when I was around 10 and a half. And I stayed there until we, my father moved us all back, not to Belfast, but to Dublin. And that was coinciding with my kind of finishing school and starting to go to university. And I went to Trinity then from here. And I had a, a rather kind of a slight detour to going to the bar, if you're interested to hear about that because my father was kind of a romantic Irishman at that time, knew nothing about such boring things as compulsory Irish. And um, it turned out that he was saying, oh, this will be wonderful now, you'll be able to be called to the bar before you're 21. And little did he know that I couldn't be called to the bar, couldn't go to UCD, couldn't go to anywhere as far as I could see, um, without qualification in Irish. So although I was born in the 26, you know, the 32 counties, the rule applied for the whole 32, although I was born in the North. So I struggled and fought with the Irish authorities for, and lost a lot of time doing that, but learned a lot about institutionalised groupthink, which was really quite appalling. No one was prepared to bend the rule to see the logic. I even stormed into the head of UCD's office at the time. I'm sure he never got over the shock, but I kind of broke through almost through the barriers and insisted on talking to him, but there was no budging. The only place it would have me at the time in Ireland for third Leopard education was Trinity. And I'm a Catholic, and at that time it was a mortal sin for Catholics to go to Trinity. I mean, if you really will this down, people will think you were exaggerating. But um, the ban was lifted shortly after I went in. 
But although I went knowing that there was a mortgage sin going with this, I think from a legal perspective, that's the mens rea. I have the guilty mind. So I think I have to accept that I was definitely in the wrong to have done that um, in the eyes of the church. But nevertheless, that's where I started. Now, I couldn't do law. And this was a blessing for this slight detour because I was able to read English, French and history and explore all of the wonderful aspects of the arts, like writing and writing for the magazine and writing for the college newspaper, and then venturing with trepidation with um, Sora Kukusak, actually, whose father was a very famous actor, and she and her sister, Sinead, went on to be very well-known actors. We were terrified to approach Trinity Players, which was a very, very prestigious Trinity theatre company at the time, but in my second and third year, I then got in there. And I mean, I was able to explore all these things that my father would have expressly disapproved of and seen as complete waste of time. Um, and I got my degree. And when by the time I got my degree, they changed the rule that you could start law without the Irish, but you had to do it before you were called to the bar. So then I was called to the bar a bit later on, all the better, I believe, for those four years doing all those other things and um, practice as a barrister and a senior counsel. QC, as they call that in England, a Queen's Council, now a KC, back to being a KC. But um, I got an offer of the, I got a tip off about a job coming up for the insurance industry looking for an ombudsman. And really, my life took a very interesting detour then when I became the first insurance ombudsman of Ireland. Pauline, that's fascinating to hear. And it sounds like quite a bit of adversity to have overcome just to, to get started out. So it's only a bit of a flavour, I guess, of everything that you've done throughout your career to date. So, Pauline, as you've said there, you were the first insurance ombudsman and the founding ombudsman for the Defence Forces of Ireland. And obviously, these are huge roles. And I'm sure that what you've started out years and years ago has really shaped how these roles have played out even now. And just listening to you talk, it strikes me that you must be somewhat of a pioneer as a woman within that industry. So can you tell us a bit about your experience as a woman in a senior leadership position in the 1990s and how do you think attitudes towards women in leadership have changed between then and now? Well, you know, I really think, Farah, I was kind of lucky because um, I'd been involved in looking at, reviewing, studying the, the role of women prior to, the 1990, to, to, to 2005 when I took that job or 1992 when I took the ombudsman for the Defence Forces job. Prior to that, it was pretty dreadful and things were moving slowly, but things were, were moving. In fact, I was just remembering, I was actually up here at the IMI and I was trying to get the exact date. I think it was February 1983. And there was a woman, first female um, uh, minister in Ireland for Women's Affairs, Nuala Fennell. She was a barrister. She's a member of Fine Gael at the time. And there was a huge conference here called Women Mean Business. And it was around the time we were a very bad recession then of the early 80s. And they brought over, it's one of the biggest rooms here, a massive conference. I was there to write about it. And um, they had a woman sent by, she was actually in the Carter administration, a lawyer called Rona Fight. And she had advised him in the Carter administration in bad times in America as well, on the basis that statistics would prove there and here, and I think in a lot of places, that small businesses buffeted the economies in bad times and they played a very important role and that a very large percentage of small businesses were run by women. So I remember that 
that conference vividly, vividly and the talk then about the need for women to be supported and, and the contribution they made, not out of any kind of generosity and spirit or um, being good about it, but because they actually made a contribution that they did contribute to be that small businesses, they would contribute to the economy. So it was bad times then and women were... You know, I, I even down down in the, in in any of the corridors of power, you will see very little evidence of women on, on in those early days. There was, of course, we were blighted by the marriage bar here in Ireland, which meant that women in certain jobs had to leave work whenever they they got married. But through the through the seventies and the eighties, and when I was writing that column in the early eighties, Pauling's Law, so many changes came in. And for example, that that semi that huge conference here, and then an organisation set up called Network, the Organisation for Women in Business, which became very powerful, which was kind of women getting together to say we need to have this this uh, network because men have their networks. They have the golf clubs, which women weren't allowed to be members of then, and all sorts of clubs, and where the great and the good and the decision makers all uh, rub shoulders. And so Network was an extremely good organisation. And then an even more brilliant one, which was founded by, by well, brilliant from the point of view that it had, I suppose, wider implications than just business. But Mary Robinson founded the um, Women's Political Association way back when in the 70s. And that was the organization to promote women in public life and politics. So there were lots of movements going on. I became chair of that particular organization the year that Mary Robinson had become president, so it was a great time to be doing that. So that was all the kind of, people call it now, management term, heavy lifting, I suppose. All of that groundwork was being done and had been done. And so, if you like, 1983, that conference was taking place here. And around 1988, I got a call from Gemma Hussey's office and um, and, and later it was actually Bertie Ahern, Minister for Labour, when that government changed, but asked me if I would be Ireland's representative at a conference at the OECD, that people, what is that? That's the Organisation for Cooperation and Development based in Paris. And they were, this was an enormous conference looking at, the title of the conference was, the role of women in the economy. So we're skipping forward then kind of to 88. And um, I went to Paris and all of the delegates were women from all of the countries all around the world. I was beside Japan, was to my right in the alphabetical order at the big round table, and she was surrounded by a group of men. And I remember, because there was, there was instantaneous translations, but I remember at the coffee break sort of saying, why are you all there? You know, and they said, I said, it's to help with the translation. And one of the men said to me, no, it is to help with the concepts. <laughs> um, now, that was 88. But I remember that was headed up by a very brilliant lawyer called um, Chris Ronalds, and she was actually, um, had advised the government, the Bethlehem Labour government in Australia, and she drafted all of the new labour laws. And that was a very interesting conference where they were looking at the role of women in the economy. So when you consider that we're chugging along there into the late 80s, things were advancing. And my Ireland, uh, representing Ireland as I did at that conference, my paper was to be put on equal opportunity equal employment opportunity programs and policies, which in itself is kind of controversial because around that time, of course, programs and policies for equal opportunities had the old chestnuts in them, should there be 
Should there be quotas and should there be women appointed to places? And there was all the arguments, good and bad, for and against. And of course, you didn't want poorly qualified people being put in. It did reek of tokenism. So they, the delicate balance had to be had to be managed there. But I presented, went back and presented the paper to um, in Paris after our preliminary meeting, and I saw that all of the countries like the UK, Ireland and Canada, for some reason, we all were on exactly the same page, and Australia, and we saw things from the same perspective as to how this needed to be managed along. So I suppose I was lucky, really, in that all that work had been done when I became the insurance ombudsman in 92, a lot of those rights had been established, barriers had been broken down. But having said that, in 1980, I remember, because I was pregnant with my son at the time, I was asked to join the commission set up by the RT Authority, Broadcasting Authority, to look at the role of women in the media. And in 1980, it was absolutely, it was quite extraordinary. And I was on as, um, to, to look from the legal point of view on that commission, and we, pro- we produced a report and we submitted it to the RT Authority in November of 1980, which was featured on the famous Late Late Show here, organised by Gay Byrne. He gave over the whole show to it. And um, it was amazing because the late um, Marion Finucane was a great broadcaster. She was in the wings that night. It was planned that at the end of the programme, they gave her and kind of mischievously said, um, we could never have a woman running the Late Late Show. And then it was kind of a set up in the audience. Somebody said, oh, yes, you could. And with that, in came Marion Finucane and she sat down and um, she was interviewed by him. And then he said, well, do you think, you know, you could do it or whatever? And he left and he walked over beside the cameras and she kind of wound on the program sitting in his chair or sitting in that chair. And I remember looking at the monitor and a very, very good uh, producer, Peter Feeney, who was very, very pro-women, took a side shot of, of the expression of Gay Byrne. And there was a kind of a mm, look on his face, you know, as if maybe, but maybe not now, if that were too soon. But... Um, that, that particular report, I still have it, and if I ever have time, particularly during times of kind of COVID isolation, if I might pick it out, that report was really revealed. Because with typical management triangle, masses of women employed in RT, all of the lower levels, pyramid, and then going up, 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 very minuscule representation at the top. And if I remember correctly, that time, not one woman on the board that we reported to. So, um, if so we go, 1980, um, and then 1988, the Paris, the role of women in the economy being taken seriously. So we were we were nurturing towards the 90s, um, still under representation, of course, on so many levels. But nevertheless, we we're moving in the right way. So I didn't really have any trouble. Um, I was quite surprised that I got the job. Um, there were a number of people who I think um, perhaps didn't like the outcome of that selection process, but it was done by one of the famous selection companies in the country. Um, and I was later told rather sinisterly by the Insurance Federation that somebody of the council, I think, had asked, was down to the final three in the shortlisting process, that the two people behind me would, the names would be kept in the safe of the Irish Insurance Federation. It sounds bizarre and rather sinister. I have no idea whether they thought they were going to chuck me out sooner than the six years that I did, and they would have those waiting in the wings, but nevertheless... So I did it for six years, and I was very glad of my time there. I learned so much, and I became involved, and it was good to see Ireland taking its place too, 
in the world of ombudsman. We only had our one ombudsman here, the statutory ombudsman, wonderful man, our first incumbent, Michael Mills, who was like everybody's idea of the perfect ombudsman. Um, and he was he was due to retire quite soon. But he phoned me, and kind of man would take an interest, come round and have a cup of tea, and gave me loads of tips and told me all sorts of things. Like, you know, everybody want to see you. You can't see everybody. And if you see one, then that word will get out that you are seeing the complainants. You know, they have to decide not to meet people or to meet them. And practical things like that. And then he said, by the way, there's this organisation called the UK Ombudsman Association. They've recently formed. They have a conference every second year over in, in university in, in, um, in, in England. And you should go over to this one in Warwick University this year. And I went to that. And I was just there as a guest. And um, when we came back, um, he then said, by the way, they're going to have their AGM next year. And he said, I think you should participate in that. We're then allowed to be associate members of that stage. And there was me, there was the backing ombudsman, um, and Jerry Murphy, and then there was an ombudsman from Northern Ireland. So we all tootled off. Jerry Murphy missed the plane. Somebody else couldn't come from Michael Mills and myself were the only two from the island of Ireland. And he was sitting behind me, the AGM, and we discovered that on table for the for the, the motion was they were going to look at whether they would admit the Irish Ombudsman to full voting membership. And if that carried, that they would then change the name of the organisation to, to recognise the, 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 the membership. So they took the vote. Wasn't, I'd say, quick. And I was watching all of the eyes and learned. This was a very difficult time. There was actually an IRA ceasefire at that time, interestingly enough. But they did. They voted for that. And the name changed from the the British-UK Ombudsman Association to the British and Irish Ombudsman Association. And for all sorts of critical and philosophical and and uh, aspirational reasons, I loved the idea that those two words were mixed together. And apparently over at the DG, the sort of department in the European Commission, they actually really liked that because it was the British and Irish Ombudsman Association. The idea of that kind of cooperation at that level where there was common interests that we were sharing we're all looking to the same objectives. So um, my work on that, I really enjoyed, and I became very, very involved in that. And then they were going to bring out a report on standards of best practice for ombudsmen. So um, they they asked me if I would join that as, rep- as the Irish representative, which I did, which is a very valuable piece of work. So it's very enthusiastic about that. Now, I'd have to say that one at that meeting in Warwick, first meeting in Warwick University, there was this, because there's a Scottish ombudsman, a Welsh, and the English, and there was a very colourful um, woman who was the deputy ombudsman for Scotland. And I remember when they were coming out from a coffee break, she said, I won't try to do the, co- the Scottish accent, but she said to me, you know, they'd never, they'd never make me the ombudsman here, being one. Now, that was at that stage in 1993. So things have changed rapidly there as well, obviously, after that. But it just, again, I think it, it points up the fact that we were on the cusp of things then, really. Things were beginning to change. So I was quite lucky that I had, you know, been given the honour of doing that at the first and of setting it up. I suppose being a woman, when you ask that question, Farah, and I know what you, what you mean when you say that things were challenging for women and to, to say other would be to give a false impression. But I suppose I found it most at the bar when I went to the bar. Because in, we were outnumbered. In 1979, when I was called to the bar, there were so few women 
and we would, it was in the old law library, the law library that's still there, but it's, it was a place. And so you, it was all visible. You could see all those kind of people sitting at their desks. They didn't have individual offices as they do now. And there was a feeling of being such a minority. And there were the names of kind of Mary Robles, the senior counsel, and Mella Carroll, the first female uh, chair of the, of the bar council. And kind of, you know, there were others, but that was it. You looked around and you couldn't see any women. And you know the expression now that they're using all the time, if you see it, you can be it, you know, as this kind of um, example for children and young people that they have to have the heroines, they have to have the role models. And I believe that's very strong. I believe, I do believe in that saying. Um, but not to overstate you, I suppose we felt outnumbered. And I suppose there is power in numbers and you did feel that you were very much under scrutiny. And watching your back all the time, I found that quite disconcerting and, and difficult. Um, and then, you know, there were comments made and you knew that under underneath it there was resentment. But misogyny is never too far away from the surface, as we know, we've you know, discussed before, and it manifests at times. But that was the time I would have noticed the, the imbalance more. Um, when I was insurance on but some, I just had I had too much to handle. And you know, a council that was supposed to be there as my suit of armor who turned out to be you know, very, very difficult to cope with and didn't protect me in the way that they should. Um, so I had a lot in my house and I had complainants who were sending in cases, you know, which were to do with, with bread and butter, with life and death. There were medical policies, there were um, accident policies where somebody was income protection policies where somebody was out of work and was struggling to get their, what they thought they were due under their income protection policy. There were people who had... Um, all sorts of widows whose husband had died of a sexually transmitted disease and discovered that um, that the, the company had looked up into his records when he was at Manchester University and discovered that he'd had tests for for these for for those sexually transmitted diseases and decided to repudiate liability on the mortgage protection policy. I mean, there was every kind of desperate case there where all human life was there and people needed an outcome to this and uh, the company had repudiated liability. There was a lot of mis-selling. People had been missold policies that were entirely inadequate. And, you know, whereas the catchphrase, I suppose, in management a few years ago was about transparency. And I always think transparency was, it's muddled up with accountability and, and, and uh, oversight. But transparency was, the, was kind of the weakish one and the one that was easiest to dodge because people could pledge to it but then not do it if there wasn't the oversight of the accountability. And, you know, for example, transparency in the insurance industry we felt like saying then of those days, oh yes, and so the nil attribution suspension period actually means that if you invest in this life insurance policy or this investment policy and for some reason you have to cash it out sooner than the uh, point of time, you might find that you're going to get back less than you put in because the nil attribution suspension period means that all of the charges and the commissions are actually all deducted out of your money. They're front-end loaded, to use the jargon again. So there was very little transparency around in that particular area of work. Now, things have improved now, obviously, because we've now had regulation in the interim period. But I, as I said, I believed so strongly at the time that their lack of a commitment to, or even a, 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 a detestation ultimately for cooperating with the idea of oversight and accountability was to me 
a very large signal that they were up to those tricks, like not being transparent and not telling people, well, by the way, if you give me this money, it's all going to be actually take, this amount will be taken before you begin to see any benefit from your investment. Things like that. And there were so, so many, so many examples. Many of the stories remain with me, actually, because they had, they had such poignancy, you, could, you just couldn't forget them. You know, and then I think I, I may have mentioned to the council when I was talking to them, I was asked to speak at a financial services conference a few years ago, many years after having been in that road, and they were looking at the behavior and the practices, and they asked me to speak on it. And I, I put my title up, was it devious or was it just instant amnesia that the, in- that the industry was suffering from? Because the only way I could make the thing in any way interesting and not sound sanctimonious or sermonizing but was I took out the figures for 2006 by the newly created, after I left, they later on put in a kind of a, a, fin- a financial services ombudsman structure, which was semi-statutory. And they consumed a person who took over the job for me and the backhand ombudsman, <coughs> um, Murphy. And they, they had that for a while and then they left and it was just the newly appointed ombudsman, a man called Joe Mead. And in 2006, his report... I looked at the results and I put them up on a slide and I took the results from my annual report of 1996 and the causes of complaint, the reasons for the complaint under the different categories. And they were more or less the same, but not only that, but but abuses such as mis-selling to particularly vulnerable people or people of senior age, selling them policies they would never live long enough to realise the benefit from, all of that kind of thing. I just put it up and it spoke for itself. There it was proof positive that it wasn't that I was just having a bad day, you know, between 1992 and 1998 or run into a bad crop of people. There were still up the same old tricks in 2006. But I think now things have, things have changed. Pauline, such an expansive and diverse career to date. It's amazing to hear you speak about all of this and you're so passionate about what you do. I want to pick up on something you mentioned there about if I can see it, I can be it as a role model for children. So last time we spoke, you told me you did something very different during lockdown. And that something was that you published a book and it just happened to be a work of fiction at that. So can you tell us a little bit about what that book is all about? Well, um, when the lockdown was announced in the March of 2020, I was finishing off a brief, a very large piece of work that I was doing for the Department of Justice. We were all asked to bring our stuff in. I had to, I didn't go in actually, I sent it in by a courier or a taxi, took it in. We took rid of our files. Suddenly it was all happening and I just thought, I'm going to be here on my own, given the dispersal of the family at the time. And I just couldn't contemplate the idea. And I looked over at the kind of ongoing projects um, tray, of which there's always one, sometimes two, uh, somewhere near my desk. And I saw this manuscript. I had been urged by a lady that I referred to earlier, Dr. Eileen Doyle, who had done that huge work for the Irish Defence Forces. Um, She was a great educator. She had been in every aspect of teaching and pedagogy in this country and was hugely, hugely influential and a great kind of mentor for me when I took that job. And I believe strongly in mentoring as well. But... um, she, she had she had said to me um, when I left the ODF, she said, you know, you must write, because her, her, her life's devotion was helping people to better themselves. She was in, always looking to see people being advanced. And she said, you need to write a book about law and about legal principles for young people. And she urged me to do that. And I had scribbled down a few things and I'd written a few things. And I thought, oh gosh, no, 
it would be a textbook and then I'd have to have illustrations, I'd have to have an annex, an index at the back, I'd have to have this, I'd have, and then who'd read it? Because it would be only children maybe who were thinking of doing law. And then if you put the law in, it would be above, over their heads. And at that stage, I had uh, three little granddaughters and I now have four. And I, two older ones used to always ask me about the law and they'd ask questions. And I used to tease them. I'd be driving them back to her house for a visitor. We'd be gone into the National Gallery or up to Collins Barrett. And I'd say, you're probably the only five-year-old who knows what a plea of mitigation means. You know, and I'd kind of say these things to them. So I had one of the, the eldest child around with me who's far too brilliant for her, for her age, but very, very advanced. And she was sitting there and I said, look, she, when she came in to visit me, she said, do you know anything about Harry Potter? And I said, as much as I need to know, and she had a book probably twice the size of the Bible. And she looked up and she said, let me tell you, and she was reading the And I thought, well, if she's seven or eight and she can understand that, maybe I'm, maybe I'm underestimating the amount that they could understand. So I sat her down and I said, I'm thinking of writing a book about the law, and these are the chapter headings I have here. And I just said, what do you think of that? And I put out the chapter headings. And then the chapter heading was policing. Police was one of them, which I think would be obviously a very important thing to, to discuss with them. And she just, she jumped up and she said, oh, yes. And what about baddie police? And she grabbed a pen from the side of my desk and she ran over and she put in that in her own writing, baddie police. What about baddie police? So anyway, that was an inspiration to keep going. I had touched in and out of it over time. When the COVID hit, I looked at that train and I thought, what am I going to do? And then I looked, I said, well, there's something you can do. And I decided to actually publish it. And I know there's a great disdain for self-publishing and people think badly of that. But nevertheless, there was nothing else I could do. We were going to be locked down for the whole of 2020, as far as I could see, and isolated to boot. So I set about doing it. And it is a marvel of the modern world that I could actually publish a book from sitting at my, in my home office, which I did. And all over the phone, getting people to do all the things that were necessary and my doing what I needed to do. And so this with the remote team, illusory team, were working. Which, you know, and I think the person who did the cover, I think if it hadn't been COVID, he would have David Joyce of language. I just think he would have won a prize for the book cover. Just if you ever saw a book cover that says, this is what it says on the tin, is what this cover is telling you, what's inside. You don't have to look at the title. But I called it, what does law mean? comma, mumu, question mark. And the idea was to reflect the questions that had been asked. And I developed the questions that had been asked and expanded on those. And so then I took a leap of faith and my old English lecturer, Trinity Brent Canelli, would be smiling because he used to talk about having the courage to be a bit wild in your style and being a bit erratic. And here I was being a bit wild and erratic with the style because I decided it was going to be introducing the subjects of, of legal principles but I was going to do it in a story so that it could be read as a story. Now, whether it is, whether I, you know, lost the run of myself in doing that, I don't know. I have to wait for the feedback from enough young people to say, well, actually reading it that way did help me to grasp the subjects. But um, I devoted the book to the grandchildren, I, I, them by name, but also to all young people who are interested in fairness, justice, and peace. And I mean, I cover, I suppose, a lot of social issues in it. I cover policing. And interestingly enough, the George, the George Floyd case happened just as it was going off to print. And I also, because it went off then to be printed, it's up on Amazon, I then 
got very brave because I had a had a microphone in the office that I had no way I didn't know how to use, but I did some tutorials on online, and I managed to get a bit of software that I could put into my computer, and I started to record it. And Audible have a very high standard, and I was quite worried it wouldn't pass, but they did. They approved that in the August of that year. I launched the book on the 6th of July, 2020. So from March to July, we produced this book. And then when it was off being printed, I thought, what am I going to do now? And so, I mean, there's this vacuum because I've been working, you know, hell for nether, morning to night on the project. And then I decided I would do a podcast because a little bird on my shoulder was saying, Maybe it is a bit babyish. Maybe it's young adult in terms of publishing, which is anywhere between 11, 12 and 18 in publishing terms. But I thought, I wonder, uh, maybe I will do the podcast. Uh, the podcast is just me talking to them, to anybody who would listen, about the chapters and going through the different topics that were covered, but doing it in a slightly more adult way and encouraging further reading and further study and research of those subjects. And so in the one then where I had covering the chapter on the policing, in the book, on my podcast, I was able to refer to the Floyd case and about excessive uh, excessive force being used by police in the, in the in the course of their duties. So I was uh, able to break in quite a lot, um, and about the Black Lives Matter, and mentioned the the, the young people who had participated, um, you know, in the in the protests with they going to school on the bus and having to give up their their seats and that kind of thing. So. I, I mean, I, what I had said at the end was really that I, what I wanted to say in the book to young people was, we need law. Children might say, why do we need that? What do we want it for? As one of the grandchildren had said to me one day, I said, gosh, I hope my, my, um, my taxes in order there, or I could end up um, before, what would happen? Well, you'd, be, you'd have to go to court if they got a summons. But why would you have to go to the court? Well, because you're called to the court, it's a summons. What's the summons? Well, couldn't you just write to the judge and say you're on holiday? And again, you know, these are the kind of questions that are in the mind of a six-year-old or a five-year-old. And um, so what I wanted to get over was we need law, why we need it, but why we need good laws, and that there are bad laws. And some laws at time, like the corn laws, that would have contributed to to um, to our, our famine here in Ireland. They were brought in to, to um, line the coffers of the, the wealthy, um, that there are bad laws, and bad laws do exist. And then, of course, a child will say, "When well, are our laws better than anybody else's in other countries? So you've got to get that balance. But my message in the book to the children, to the young people is, or was, that, that we need law to protect the democracy, to protect the fragile democracy. And now this went out in 2000 and 2020. And I'm not flattering myself here, but nearly every one of the chapters has, has relevance now because I also dealt in very, very deeply with misinformation, which I'm very concerned about as a great threat. And all the stuff came out about the, the, the way that Facebook had been used. And um, what I was saying to the children really is, we need good laws to protect our democracy. Here's what democracy is and why we need to protect it. What are the alternatives? And then I suppose at the end of the day, we always look to great Seamus Heaney, no talk has ever complete or without reference to the the words of wisdom of the poet and the thinker there um and i i he said in one of his quotes he said we're all every generation is on its own conveyor belt and what i would be really saying to the children or the young people at the end of it or to all people um i'd like you every so often to hop off the conveyor belt 
of your generation and ask the questions, are the systems and processes, which I believe should be sacrosanct, are they sufficiently working and sufficiently robust to ensure that our democracy is protected and to, to carry with you that curiosity that just refuses to sit back and say, we'll float along and accept everything that's written. We're going to hop off the conveyor belt and we're going to test whether our processes are actually doing what needs to be done to have fairness, justice and peace. Pauline, it's been fantastic having you on the IMI Talking Leadership podcast today. I wish you all the best with your next endeavours. I'm sure we'll be hearing from you again with another impactful project in no time. And thank you, everyone, for listening to our podcast today. We're looking forward to bringing you another edition soon. You can follow us on SoundCloud or on your preferred podcast provider to ensure that you don't miss an episode. Until next time.